0: Welcome everyone to Martiak Market Update with your host, Mark Martiak. Mark is a Managing Director of Investments with AGP, Alliance Global Partners, member of FINRA and CIPIC. This show will explore topics ranging from market updates to the global economy and personal finance. Money is knowledge, and Mark wants to help you navigate your relationship with money by offering timely guidance and his unique perspective. Here's Mark Martiak.
1: Welcome back. And thank you for joining me as we discuss key trends shaping our industries and markets. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Bruce Brumberg, editor-in-chief and co-founder of MyStockOptions.com. Our conversation today will address an important question concerning equity compensation. You've been awarded stock options. What next? Before we get started, allow me to tell you a little bit about Bruce. Bruce Brumberg has devoted most of his professional career to making complex legal and tax concepts understandable to people who don't enjoy reading the securities laws or the Internal Revenue Service Code. In MyStockOptions.com, Bruce created the premier source of web-based educational content and tools on stock compensation, including stock options, restricted stock, and employee stock purchase plans for plan participants, financial advisors, and companies. The creation and management of the website combined Bruce's in-depth understanding of stock plans with his proven ability to present and explain complex legal, financial, human resource, and compensation topics using innovative techniques. Bruce also created MyNQDC.com which is a different site that Bruce created on non-qualified deferred compensation. The highly respected newsletters Brumberg Publications have created and write include the Digest for Compliance Professionals, the Review for Dealmakers, Brief for Asset Management Professionals, and Dimensions. It's now published by Top and Merrill. Bruce has spoken at numerous conferences and seminars on stock options, restricted stock, equity compensation, securities disclosure, and insider trading. Welcome, Bruce.
2: Well, thank you for that uh, introduction. There's more things in there than I even realized I've done.
1: Well, this is an honor to to have you as my guest. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me. Once you've been granted stock options, what questions should you ask, or what specifically do you need to understand before you do something with them?
2: Well, the first thing is to know uh, what the vesting schedule is, because until the options vest, let's say it's in a a public company, you can't really do anything with them. So they could be vesting quarterly, they could be vesting monthly after one year. Unless it's a private company, some private companies have what are called early exercise stock options. I also want to know what kind of stock options you have. They could be incentive stock options or they could be non-qualified stock options. You also want to know your company's rules for exercising the options and what happens when you do exercise them, what account they appear in. And then if it's a public company, you want to find out um, whether you'll be able to actually sell some shares right away and exercise to cover the exercise costs and then any taxes you may owe.
1: Can you elaborate a little bit more on how can you exercise the options and what's the thought process that goes into that prior to exercising them?
2: Well... You know, how-to is, uh, is you know, the mechanics of it. So, um, you know, if it's a public company, usually there's going to be a website, and you go to that website and you indicate which options you want to go ahead and exercise, and you, you want to look at the, um, you know, the options that you have, whether it be the ones that have the biggest spread or the ones that are closest to uh, termination um, expiration. And that's, that's another factor you want to look at with your stock options is what's the term. Usually it's 10 years, uh, but if you leave the company early for whatever reason, disability, death, change of... Job, uh, retirement, early retirement—that term is going to be cut short. It's going to be a shorter post-termination exercise period. So you have both the mechanics, and then you have the financial planning issues, and that's mark where people come to you and say, "Well, when should I exercise those stock options?" And uh, you know that really varies. I mean, there's there's some rules of thumb, but um, it you know it's all based on where you think the stock price is going, and um, you know how much risk you want to take. Because stock options they offer a lot of wealth. There are a lot of upside to them when you leave them to exercise as long as possible, at least for non-qualified stock options. At the same time, they're very fragile instruments. So a stock price could drop very quickly and all those gains could disappear.
1: Can you differentiate for our listeners the ISOs or incentive stock options and restricted stock units and and non-qualified stock options, non-statutory stock options?
2: Yeah, So there's two kinds of stock options, um, the non-qualified stock options and the incentive stock options. And to most people, they're all incentive stock options. So it's a little confusing, but incentive stock options have special tax treatment under the tax code. So let's talk about non-qualified first, because that's the most commonly granted, because anyone could get them whether you're an employee or no longer employee, and there's um, no limit on the size of the grants with non-qualified stock options. So, then when you exercise the option, you always have that fixed purchase price, that fixed exercise price. And that's what makes stock options stock options, right? You're getting the option to buy the stock at a set price. Some companies have premium price options or index options or whatever, but usually and often required, the exercise price needs to be the market price of the data grant. So, let's say exercise price is $10 a share and um, you exercise the stock options when the market price is $14 a share. So um, you have that $4 spread. That $4 spread for non-qualified stock options, that's going to be ordinary income. And that's going to be, that $4 per option is going to be on your W-2. And at the time you exercise it, there'll be tax withholding for federal tax, for state tax. If you live in a state, then a state tax. There'll be Medicare and Social Security up to the yearly maximum. And so now you've exercise those stock options, $14 a share market price. And that $14 is now what's called your tax basis. And so you just say you do hold the shares and then you sell it at $18 a share two years later. So you're going to have 18 minus 14. That's going to be $4 in long-term capital gains. And plus earlier, you had $4 of ordinary income. Now let's compare it to incentive stock options. The ISOs for short. And those fit into a special tax code section. So if you hold those ISO shares after exercise for more than two years from grant and more than one year from exercise, then the entire difference between the exercise price and the market price at sale is going to be long-term capital gains. So using the example I just gave for the non-qualified stock options, you exercise them and they had a $10 exercise price and you sold the stock at $18. So that entire spread between the $18 and the $10, that's going to be long-term capital gains. You have all $8 of long-term capital gains, while with the non-qualified stock options, you had $4 of ordinary income and $4 of long-term capital gains. Now, with ISOs, there's another tax issue. When you exercise the ISOs and you hold the shares through the calendar year of exercise, that spread at exercise between the market price and the exercise price and remember the market price at exercise is 14, and the exercise price is 10. That four dollars per share becomes part of your AMT income. And you have to do an AMT calculation to see if you're actually going to trigger the AMT. So ISOs have greater complications, and if you should hold the ISOs and the stock price drops, and you've triggered the AMT, you may want to pay taxes on paper profits. You do trigger the AMT. You do get a tax credit, and usually can get back pretty quickly what you paid earlier. But there are definitely more complications. Now, companies don't use ISOs as broadly as they do non-qualified stock options, and you tend to see ISOs more for senior people or more commonly in a a private company. The other kind of grant you asked about is not a form of stock option, restricted stock, or restricted stock units. That's a full value grant. So instead of getting this right to buy stock. You're actually getting stock. The grants are much smaller because you're guaranteed the value of that stock when it vests. So now you have a grant of restricted stock units and, and the vesting is at $14 a share. And so that's what you're going to get, shares with a value of $14. Tax treatment is somewhat similar to non-qualified stock options, you could say, in that you have Ordinary income recognized at vesting, when the shares are delivered, and you know, the Medicare and Social Security up to the yearly maximum, the W-2 reporting. Um, so you need, to, you need to be aware of all these grants what the tax treatment is, both when you exercise it, when there's vesting, such as with restricted stock or restricted stock units, and then at sale.
1: So with the RSUs, restricted stock units,
2: Bruce, what are the typical vesting schedules? Well, typical, you know... It, is changing. Um I would say in private companies or in tech companies I'm often seeing let's say you get a grant of 10,000 RSUs. A 1-year cliff for 25% of it and then maybe monthly after that or quarterly after that. Every company does that but that tends to be the private company model right now. In a public company um it tends to be, you know, 25% a year so you start, you know, January 1st 2021 and then january first two thousand and 25 percent vest or if mean, it's not twenty five percent a year it could be thirty three percent a year it could be twenty percent a year it doesn't have to be that way there's no formal rule about what vesting has to be but companies do benchmark and they see what others are doing and they have different thoughts about what's the best you know retention tool for their employees and executives what's the best incentive tool so you know that that's always taken into account but you want to follow that vesting because until the really sh- the options or the restricted stock units or restricted stock vests, you really can't do that much with shares. Restricted stock has one little twist to it compared to restricted stock units, and then you can make an 83B election at the time of grant. And if you do it within 30 days, you can make the filing with the IRS, you'll be paying taxes on the value of the shares at that point. That could be much lower than later on when they vest, and it could start your capital gains holding period.
1: So with any stock option information in terms of what type an employee has, broadly speaking, when they need help outside of hiring a financial advisor like me, where do they go to get that help? You mentioned earlier there's a site that the company sets up typically. How do they go about that? And is it easy to grasp an understanding of what they have in their vesting schedules just by calling someone in HR or going to the site that the company has set up or a combination of both?
2: Well, I mean, there's what do you have, and that would be on that website. A number of companies that are public, they select you know one brokerage firm that their employees have to work with. You don't have to keep the shares with that brokerage firm site, but they they want to centralize the administration and the and the securities law inside trading compliance, so they've picked one firm or maybe two firms where you, your holdings go to, and on those sites, there sometimes is educational content and tools and uh Maybe there may even be educational content licensed from MyStockOptions.com because we do provide it to some of the provider sites. And then also HR departments, compensation departments, uh, stock plan admin, they usually do some educational outreach. They could have occasional webinars. They could have educational content. They could have um, you know in-person meetings if they do in-person meetings. Um, so you want to be asking those kind of questions. And then at the same time, if you're working with a financial advisor like yourself, Mark, who is become very knowledgeable in this area, you're a source of, you know, teaching too.
1: If you decide to leave your job, whether you're in senior management or or even in middle management or part of the rank and file employees, how does that typically impact your options? Give us a few scenarios based on the level that you are at in your
2: company. Well, there's two different aspects that are affected when there's any kind of job change with stock options. First, the standard stock option, let's say, is a 10-year term. That term is going to be cut short. So if you leave after five years, that's it. Any more options that are out there that need to vest or restricted stock, restricted stock units that need to vest, they're not going to vest. So you want to be following that vesting schedule if you're trying to decide what's the best day for you to leave the company. And leave, again, could be early retirement or retirement or, or you know, just changing jobs. They're all considered terminations under a stock plan, but the definitions are different in terms of you know, what may happen with a, a retirement or what may happen with a de- disability. The other thing is that even though the option has this 10-year term, not only does the vesting stop when you leave after, let's say, the five years, but there's going to be what's called a post-termination exercise period. So you can't keep those options for the remaining five years of the 10-year term. No way. You know, standard provision, not required by law, but standard provision for, let's say, a job change is 90 days. You're going to have 90 days after you leave the company. You better exercise those stock options or you're going to forfeit them. It will be longer usually in the case of a disability and the case of retirement, in the case of, you know, death, but doesn't have to be. And um it's never gonna be any longer the post-termination exercise period than the than the term of the option that's there. I've seen situations where someone has, you know, options a 10 year term and they may have a retirement. Um after year nine and under their plan with retirement, the post-termination exercise period would actually push them beyond the 10 years. That doesn't mean that they have more than 10 years exercise, the options. So two things you need to focus on. What happens to the outstanding stock options, vested and unvested, when you leave the company in any of those kind of life type situations? And that could be it cuts. Off the vesting, the vesting ends or the vesting could be accelerated or the vesting could be allowed to continue. And then what is the post-termination exercise rules? Meaning what is the time period in which you must exercise those options or lose them? Realize too that ISOs, again, they have a lot more tax rules. They only can be exercised by employees. So if you should have more than 90 days after exercising ISOs, they become non-qualified stock options. So the tax code gives you sort of this, you have to be an employee within 90 days of when you exercise them or isos become non-qualified stock options automatically except for death or disability you know there are some exceptions it's 12, 12 months for disability if you're
1: holding rsu's restricted stock give me a scenario where i i can make the most of that if if i'm an executive or or someone that just joined a company that's about to have an ipo Give me, a, give me a sense, a scenario, how we can make the most of that.
2: Well, restricted stock units are a little bit different in that um, you don't have to make a decision about whether to exercise them. So you know, when those shares are delivered, that's when you're going to have that amount of ordinary income. And in some ways, this is like any other stock. Some people say, well, you should look at it and say, if I had a bonus for $50,000, and would I go out and buy that stock for $50,000? So the idea is when you have RSUs, Let's say in a standard public company situation, you want to be looking at, you know, what is the concentration of your net worth in company stock, you know, what is the dividend the company is paying. Um, if you're a senior level person, is there any ownership guidelines or retention requirements? There's not as many decisions involved with restricted stock and restricted stock units because you don't have the choice of when to have the income hit. So you really want to do some planning around that too. You know, you want to make sure you're maximizing your 401k or you know, if you have a ability to participate in a non qualified deferred comp plan, that's that other site that I was involved. I'm involved with mynqdc.com, com. Um, you know, look at charitable donations, donor advised funds, things like that. What's become a little more complicated is that in in newly public companies, in the later stage private companies part, they are usually granting what are called double trigger RSUs, and those are RSUs that vest based on two conditions. One is time worked a company since grant, you know, standard time-based vesting. And the other is a liquidity event, let's say this IPO. And so what will happen is you may have a series of restricted stock unit grants that vested under trigger one, but all of them suddenly vest trigger two a certain number of days after the IPO, when the shares are delivered. So someone who has RSUs in a newly public company needs to be aware that there's going to be a big income hit. Because all those other tranches are vesting. And also, the amount of tax withholding may not be enough. Some companies do allow modification of the tax withholding rate. Others are just using the straight 22% right now. Um, and that rate could change, but the straight 22% because it's tied to that bracket. Um, and then for amounts over a million, it's 37%, which again was tied to that top tax bracket. Um, so you have some companies going public that are allowing an election to change the withholding rate, but you may be underwithheld and you're going to have a big income hit anyhow when you have both of these triggers that are being hit after the IPO.
1: And the top tax bracket is 35% right
2: now. 30, it's 37% right now.
1: 37%. Okay. So essentially, one has to be really prepared to immediately uh, come up with the, the income tax that's owed when the shares hit, as you say?
2: Well, not so much the, you know, it depends. Um, you want to do the tax analysis, you know, with with a financial advisor or, or a CPA or an enrolled agent to see you're all above. You know, financial advisors also can be, you know, enrolled agents and CPAs um, and and or be part of the team. So what will happen is that you have some choices. Let's say it, the company is just holding it at the straight 22%. And um, that's linked to whatever that tax bracket is—the twenty-two percent—and the, and the top tax bracket. I'm, I'm using the thirty-seven percent. If that goes up to thirty-nine point six, that would be the top tax bracket for amounts over a million. So you want to see, okay, should I put some money aside to pay with my tax return? Um, should I find a way to increase my regular salary withholding? And should I consider estimated taxes? I mean, those are the kind of the questions you want to look at. Or maybe I shouldn't care. I think I can, you know, make more money from with the money that's being underwithheld and invested and then pay the IRS whatever penalties are owed with the tax return. That's another choice, and some people do that. But it's, it's, it's better to do the analysis and decide, you know, I'm going to owe taxes and at least consider estimated taxes.
1: All very important questions. And certainly uh, all of these strategies require some, some forethought before everything comes at you all at once. For non-qualified stock options, they're obviously the most common and are taxed when you exercise them. How do you avoid making costly tax mistakes when exercising your non-qualified stock options?
2: Well, I mean, one of the mistakes is to exercise too early. I think that uh, there's this perception that, oh, if I exercise my non-qualified stock options now, you know, as soon as possible, right after vesting, there's a positive spread, that, um, and then hold the shares you know, to sell for long-term capital gains, I'm going to pay less in taxes, and my gains are going to be more. And it's actually counterintuitive. And we have a tool on mystockoptions.com, the options comparison modeling tool that shows that with non-qualified stock options, you know, in many cases, if you think the stock price is going to keep going up, which no one has that crystal ball, um, you're much better off waiting to exercise. Because you will pay more in taxes the longer you wait. But the option grows and that leverage, that spread becomes much larger. And so when you do exercise the option, if you do the analysis, and you know, I've been using this $10 exercise price, $14 market price at exercise, and $18 sale price, if you do the tax analysis, you're better off with those non qualified stock options waiting to exercise at, at the 18, and then actually exercise aiming at 14. And then selling them in a, the stock long term at 18, you'll owe less in taxes with the early exercise, but the total amount of your gain, the total amount of your proceeds, will be bigger in waiting. Now, you you don't necessarily want to wait to exercise all your options at the very end. You may come up with various strategies. I know Mark, you've developed some of them where you know you sort of um, income average out. So the last you know so many years of the option term, you set certain targets and you exercise and sell the stock of those particular targets. And um, you get out of the stock. Because again, you know, options are very fragile. You know, once there's a big spread there, um, you don't get as much out of waiting to exercise as you would when there's a smaller spread. And if the stock price should drop when there's a big spread, you, you lose a lot. It's not proportional. Like we own restricted stock, restricted stock units. The stock price goes up 5%. And you know, the value of the restricted stock, restricted stock units goes up 5%. With stock options, based on the spread that's there, the options could go up just, you know, market prices could go up 5%, but the, the value of the options that spread could go up 20%. And the reverse could happen too. So you really have to run the analysis, see what the, the amount of the spread is, see how much time you have left on the non-qualified stock options. You know, the other mistake, of course, it's not even a tax mistake, is, you know, not exercising valuable stock options at all. And it sometimes happens. You know, someone um, you know, leaves the company, they don't realize how much time they have left, they think they have the full term, or someone passes away and the beneficiary or the state isn't aware of what the term of the option is, or someone just keeps working at the company and has a lot of grants and is not tracking them. And so what happens is, you know, you forfeit valuable stock options. And that's not a good situation at all to be in.
1: If the Biden proposal to raise capital gains tax gets passed... How do you see that affecting this year with vested stock options? Would it be advisable or at least should it be considered for those options to be exercised for non-qualified in particular, given that there's an ordinary income tax that's levied upon exercise? I mean, there's ordinary income, and then there's capital gains tax. I understand that, but but is there any is there any planning that should be considered as this Biden proposal works its way through Congress between now and year year end?
2: Well, the Biden it's the proposal that doesn't is not really on the table that right now. It's more the uh, what's come out of the House Ways and Means Committee. The Biden proposal is a little more uh, drastic in terms of the change. It's like it was going to change the top capital gains rate to match the top ordinary income rate. So, I mean, if you look at what's in the House Ways and Means Committee, because obviously and what they reported out, that's the only thing that's going to get the support of all the Democrats, I'm assuming. It would raise the top capital gains rate from 15 to 20%. And it's just for individuals over 400,000, households for over 450,000. So first you have to be in that income bracket. It's also not 100% clear whether it's going to apply to all the gains or it's just going to apply to certain part of the gains that are over, push your income over that amount
1: over that threshold of 400,000.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it does sound like oh, it's a 5% increase and then but that is actually a 25% you know, it's a 25% increase, right? It's going to go up additional 5%. With the top rate's 20%, so it's going to go to 25%. I don't know, I may mean, got the numbers wrong, but it's going to go up 5%. So you just have to do the analysis and think if it's worth it. Um the ordinary income differential is very small. It's just going to go up to 39.6 from 37% So again, you have to decide is it worth that, is it worth it to exercise the options early just for that, you know, to capture that income early? Because it doesn't take much of an increase in the stock price for it to cover it.
1: With the ISOs, they obviously qualify for special tax exemptions, but they also come with additional risk. How can you tell if exercising your incentive stock options will trigger, you mentioned earlier, AMT. Short for Alternative Minimum Tax. How can you how can you tell if exercising your ISOs will trigger that AMT?
2: Yeah, it's you have to go through an analysis. I mean, there's a there's the form sixty two fifty one part of the tax return, and that's used to determine your amount of your AMT income. And um, the spreaded option exercise ISO option exercise, not non qualified stock option exercise, it's part of that AMT income calculation because the ISOs have a, are like a special tax preference; they're not taxed like non-quals. So that spreaded exercise that's added to your AMT income. And there used to be a lot more things that were part of your AMT income, like, like property taxes and state taxes, which are deductible. They're added back also, but they're capped at $10,000. So there's not, it's not as big an add back. In like fact, the spreaded option exercise for ISOs can be the biggest add back that there is. Um, so you figure out what your AMT income is. So it's not an automatically you're going to trigger the AMT with an ISO exercise and a hold. And then from that AMT income, you subtract an income exemption amount. And under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it became effective when, I think 2018, the exemption amount went up a little bit. And the phase out for where those exemption amounts occur went up a lot. So it's much less likely you're going to trigger the AMT. So you have to do that analysis to figure out, OK, what is the amount of AMT income after the exemption? And you multiply that by, let's say, either 26 or 28% based on the amount of income. And then you compare that to the amount of ordinary tax you owe under the standard part of the Form 1040. And then you pay the higher amount. Or you pay the differential. You can think of as a differential. So if the AMT tax is higher, you pay whatever the ordinary income amount is, plus whatever the additional amount is for AMT. You know, it's a question, I mean, is is AMT something you should be afraid of? And financial advisors have different thoughts about that. Because you can recoup it much quicker, because you do get the AMT tax credit. I mean, not everyone feels it's something to be that worried about. But it is something you want to calculate.
1: It's important. I agree. This is more of a qualitative question. How do you balance your loyalty to your company's stock as an executive and an employee with your overall financial goals? And I know a lot of that uh, I deal with all the time. But how do you how do you do that, Bruce?
2: Well, it varies by company. I mean, it's some. If you're a senior executive. You know, a key employee. Sometimes you you actually have to talk to the CEO before you sell and explain why. I mean, every company is going to have a pre pre clearance process. They're going to have blackout periods and window periods. You need to be aware of all that. But what's important to know is that you know it may be acceptable to sell. It may be um, something that people understand the need for diversification, or maybe that you're expected to hold the stock. It doesn't, and it could affect your ability to get future grants. Um, sometimes the greatest wealth is created by holding the stock. You know, people talk about. Need to diversify, and the risk of being overconcentrated. And those are all true, but at the same time, you know, those who've held Amazon stock and worked there obviously have done pretty well, or Apple stock and done well. So you have to balance off, you know, your personal goals, what the message seems to be from the company, former rules, you know, actual rules that the company has on ownership guidelines, uh, you know, and and trading windows, and then of course your own financial needs, whether they be long term or short term.
1: Mm-hmm. And the megatech companies that you mentioned certainly are good examples, right So what are the differences in, in stock option grants for these public companies, megatech for example, and private companies? Some of the nuances that, that are, are distinguished by both of it just give me a sense what are the what are the differences in those grants?
2: Well in a private company, It's more likely you're going to, early on, you're more likely you're going to get stock options. And more likely there'll be incentive stock options. And 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 then later on, as the private company grows, it's more likely there'll be restricted stock or restricted stock units. So you may actually, if you start early on, you may have a combination. You could even have founder stock right from the beginning uh, if you're a really early employee, plus Intentive stock options, non-qualified stock options, restricted stock units. In a public company, established public company, you know, based on your level, you may just have restricted stock units. Um, you may be fortunate enough to get stock options, or a real high-level person is going to get performance shares, which are going to vest based on some kind of uh, performance condition of the company, like total shareholder return relative to competitors or some index or total revenue goals, so something like that. Um, the vesting can be a little different in a private company. I was talking about that a little bit earlier. And that you may have you know, mo- uh, monthly vesting after a one-year cliff vest for, let's say, 25% of it. So these are just you know, some of the differences between the grants.
1: Can you explain how you evaluate vested stock options once that six-month lockup period expires post-IPO? in other words if, if you have the vested options you're vested what what strategies would you consider post ipo after the lockup and and or if you have uh, as you approach well let's let's address that first and we'll talk about you know the pre
2: ipo well if it's you know the lockup is over you have to to come up with some kind of financial plan for what you want to do with the proceeds so that's always very very important i mean you have to fit you know stock options into your Short-term goals, your long-term goals, and decide what you're going to do with the share proceeds. I mean, MyStockOptions.com has been around 21 years now, and and I'd say you know we've dealt with a lot of participants and financial advisors and companies, and you know the, the happiest participants are the ones that have a financial goal for the proceeds. So that's the first thing, you know, the first thing is to say, okay, I'm planning to you know pre fund my kids' college education, or buy that second home, or renovate that kitchen, or going up big vacation whatever and you know do the after tax calculation for those stock options and if you reach that exercise those options and sell that stock and use those proceeds for what you want to do if you're willing to just wait it out you don't need the money you have good salary you have other savings then to come up with a financial plan really depends, again, on some price targets you set for the stock price, both price targets and total amount of the gains, You know, not just the price targets, but what do the gains equal, and say, wow, when I equal it, you know, that size gain, I think it's time to exercise and sell the stock. As I was mentioning earlier, when the spread is already really big, um, then there's not as much value in the option. You know, the option is that right to buy the stock, and it's all different option valuation models, Monte Carlo, Black Scholes, and a few others. And they'll show you that you know, when the spread's already pretty big, the value of the option part of the option has gone down. So you may decide also that those are the ones you want to exercise.
1: I understand. So they fit in to your overall financial planning strategy, but at the same time, you want to understand what you will do with the proceeds. What is the strategy beyond exercising the options to own the shares?
2: Yes, yes. And also, we just did a webinar on this about this idea of 10B51 trading plans. So if you are a senior person or even just an employee who regularly knows material non-public information, you're not going to be able to sell the stock when you want to. You can exercise the options. You may not be able to sell the stock when you want to. So you want to put one of these 10B51 trading plans into place when you don't know material non-public information and say, oh, I'm going to sell stock at X prices, let's say, over the next year. And that's, that's a strategy to just definitely consider.
1: On the other side of that, Bruce, what if you have friends and family shares, not options, pre-IPO, and you're offered that generally in a window leading up to the IPO as an employee or as an executive? How do you approach taking advantage of these shares?
2: It varies. Hopefully, um, you know, many of us, including myself, have had that opportunities through the years, and sometimes it works out, you know. Because you're all excited, and you hear about the big run-up in, you know, some other company's stock on day one, and it pops. In other cases, it doesn't work out at all, and the stock price goes south after the IPO. So you just, it's, it's, it's like evaluating any opportunity you have. Um, you could say that, you know, I'm not going to use the money I, all the money I put aside for retirement, or my house renovation, or my kids' college education. But, you know, you know, some financial advisors, and you may have that approach too, like there's some fun money, you know, like you may have a very mark, a very disciplined approach that you set up with a detailed plan for your clients, but you realize there's human and, you know, they want to be able to have some investments of their own. And so, you know, as long as it's just some small percentage of, of their net worth that they're putting into buying those friends and family shares, because some IPOs do great in the short term or in the long term, and others, you know, may drop right away or may do Great later on, you just don't know. So it's really just like evaluating any other opportunity, but try not to get too carried away by the enthusiasm.
1: Don't let it overshadow your judgment and your sound uh, rationale for financial planning.
2: Yes, yeah, whatever that should be. Um, you know, People's attitudes change about approach to financial planning in long-term up markets versus long-term down markets. You know, that's, that's very, very true. You know, people now say, oh, you may, because there's been so, the markets have been so good that people seem to be more willing to take risks. But if the markets were, you know, we had the same time period of a down market, I think people probably wouldn't be willing to take as many risks. So we have to see, you know, what we head into. You know, different financial advisors have different theories about, you know, we headed for a prolonged downturn or a market correction or things will just continue on the same path. You know, that's always that crystal ball that um, we wish we had.
1: I agree, and uh, every situation is different, and it's important uh, to create a custom strategy for managing your stock options. And speaking of which, if you need more information about creating a custom strategy for managing your stock options and restricted stock units, please reach me directly by email at m.mardiac at allianceg.com. Thank you for joining me, Bruce. It's, it's really been fun and every opportunity to speak with you on, on these subjects. I'm always enlightened, and you really uh, know how to articulate exactly what this is all about. Again, mystockoptions.com offers a plethora of information. It's been useful for me as well as many, many others. Is there anything else you want to add, Bruce, before we say uh, farewell?
2: Well, um, another... Um area of employees can take advantage of is the employee stock purchase plans, too. That's a whole other topic altogether. So you want to see whether you're a financial advisor or an individual at a company, whether you can participate in an ESPP. And we have a lot of great content on my stock Options about ESPPs, too, because those can be almost a sure thing based on how long you hold the stock for.
1: There you have it. As I said, it's been fun. Thank you, Bruce, for joining me. I wish you a good week and uh, weekend ahead. I'll see you next time when we discuss inflation risk and what it means for your investment portfolio. Thank you, Bruce.
2: Thank you, Mark.
0: Thank you for listening to Martiak Market Update. Mark Martiak is the executive producer. Sean Dooley is producer. And Jennifer Gray is consulting producer and content editor. We also want to thank Libby Grant. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay tuned for Mark's next episode coming soon.